नमो तगवत अर्हत समुस नमो तगवत अर्हत समुस नमो तगवत अर्हत समुस अपारुथे संगमथस थवरा ये सोरवंथु So this opportunity to reflect on Dhamma the way it is. And there's a background of silence. As our refuge. And so we always begin with this sense of of uh, looking inward rather than looking outward. So looking inward is, we're now just observing, uh, being the witness or the observer of the body that's sitting here and the emotions that change according to conditions, the senses, the 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 eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, all this, you're witnessing, not owning. So the ignorance, when we talk about ignorance of Dhamma, it's where we own the body as our separate self. And we see see ourselves always as alone in a vast universe, in a very vulnerable form, so well, we, you know, when we do this, then we suffer a lot because if we are the human body, whether it be male or female, is subject to all kinds of situations that we cannot control or predict. The more you think when you're alone sometimes, when you're in society, you can feel part of a group or a sangha or a community or, uh, you know, some kind of collective identity which gives us a sense of meaning and purpose maybe to our lives as individuals. So this uh, notice that, you know, in marriage and in family life and in relatives and or when we go into tribal situations, belonging to a tribe, this sense of identity is not so lonely because we're with other lonely people who may be all ignorant of Dhamma the way it is. So the... uh, Witnessing, as I said previously last week, being the witness, the puto, is is not a 
is not a critical function. The witness doesn't criticize, it just knows the way it is at this moment, here and now. In this moment, for each one of us, it can only be this way. And how, and maybe it's going to be very different from one individual to another. So if we start arguing about our feelings, you know, we, we end up in a, in a battle because we can't expect uh, two people to feel the same way at the same moment. Uh, that happens, but rarely. So when I gave the introduction, after the Namotasa, then the, the, the quote from the scripture, Apavruta de Sangamatasa Taura, that the gate to the deathless is open. You know, I always, as I've said many times in my videos, that, uh, that always inspired me, that, that there's, before I really uh, investigated that particular teaching, you know, it seemed like a kind of hopeless, despairing situation. Just me as a lonely individual in a vulnerable form in a vast universe. Uh, when you're thinking of that as the way it is, and then, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, I might survive into old age and then die. What's the purpose of life? What's it all about anyway? And so uh, this, these words are deathless. The gate to the deathless is open. Suddenly gave me an insight. The deathless. Uh, I'm identifying out of ignorance with everything that dies, that changes. So that, you can see, is the cause of suffering, being attached to things that are unstable and changing, dependent on other conditions. We're at a time now in the, here in, in, uh, in the United States where the conditions are, you know, very changeable and there's so many uh, predictions, death, doom, decay, and, and uh, end of the world and climate change and and political changes, authoritarian leaderships, and and on and on like that. These are all speculations about the future that you hear from various people or see in, in the mass media. Because most people are, have the, only their lonely, isolated selves to to experience life with. And this is a time where mass media is kind of amazing, where we can tune in to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and in Iraq and Afghanistan and in India and China and on and on like that. And then the climate change is a rather frightening uh, perception to, to hold to. So, it can be we, being the witness of this, 
where does fear arise in our lives? You know, and it's about the future. The future is unknown, right? At this, this very moment, for each one of us, the future is uncertain. And that's the way it is at this moment for all of us. Tomorrow is a perception in the mind, in the present, present moment. And anything could happen to you know tomorrow or the next year or on and on like that. So this witnessing is just no. It's not saying anything wrong with with uh, predictions for the future or or you know that it, we shouldn't uh, think about the future. But it's the attachment to the future as something we we fear or dread or maybe we hope everything will go right. The Messiah comes and saves the world or, you know, there's suddenly a significant change and we get wise leadership and intelligent uh, governments that we can trust and, and that is kind of the wishful thinking and that's what it is in the present moment when we think about Armageddon or the end of the civilization or end of planet Earth. At this moment, what is that? It's a perception made out of words about the unknown. So when we worry, you know, like worry and anxiety and fear are common human emotions in modern societies. So we go to psychotherapists or possibly try to figure out, you know, there's something wrong with oneself because one is caught up in, in uh, an obsessive worries, anxiety and fears. And we take it very personally as something you know, that I shouldn't have that, I shouldn't be a worrier, or anxiety is my real problem, fear, I have a lot of fears, irrational fears, there's something wrong with me. So we, we're taking this fear of the future as a, in a very personal way. But what is, where does fear arise? It always arises in the present moment. It's not something that has any reality outside of the present moment in individuals' conscious awareness. Anxiety and worry, there's so much to worry about. When you have children, family life, you know, worrying about children, the future of your children, about the marriage itself in the present moment is like this. You know, worry is at this moment, if, if I'm caught up in worrying about the future, it's like this. That's witnessing. I'm not saying I shouldn't worry or there's something wrong with me because I worry a lot. It's really ab abiding in the pure conscious awareness, being the witness to 
what, what that you're looking at inwardly, not as some external kind of fear, like a, an elephant entering the vihara or something. That's a that's a, something to be really frightened of in the present moment. But we can spend our lives in very secure situations with padlocks on the door and guard dogs and CCTV cameras and burglar alarms and booby traps and and all the rest, you know, and still be caught up in endless worry and fear about burglars or enemies or Satan or the devil or ghosts. So where do these perceptions arise? You know, they, they arise in, in the mind and we cling to them either through being obsessed with worry or resisting it, taking it personally as some kind of weakness or problem with, with uh, oneself, rather than witnessing that even fear of ghosts or political change or climate change in the future or family problems is not saying there's anything wrong with it, but we're observing. The witness doesn't criticize it. It just notices it, that it, it exists, it rises in the present, in the mind, and it ceases in the mind. So this is where wisdom begins to operate through these individual forms, universal wisdom. And the Buddha's teachings are, um, you know, pointers at how to trust in universal wisdom through investigating the way it is. So the separateness, the fear of being left alone, of being rejected by society, and on and on like that. These are conditions that we create in the present moment according to other conditions, because we don't feel that way all the time. It changes when the conditions change. So the Buddha was very skilled in pointing to this conditionality that we we are so deluded by, blindfolded by the way we cling to something that changes, its very nature is unstable and untrustworthy. So that's why the first noble truth is about suffering, because it, it's the common experience of humanity everywhere on the planet that uh, is, the, you know, that creates a sense of fear and, and anxiety and worry. Then we also have a lot of regrets about the past because we have a memory. So we, we have a lot of problems with guilt because we, we say things or do things, commit offenses or do something wrong or say something bad uh, that we remember in the present. 
and then we can feel guilty about it. So that's not witnessing guilt. That's not being aware of guilt is like this. Remorse is like this. You're actually caught, you're clinging to it. And you can spend the rest of your life feeling guilty about doing something foolish when you were 16 years old that you can carry around with you for the rest of your life. If you're, you know, if you're not aware of, of how to be the witness to life rather than the owner of it. So the witness doesn't own anything. It's pure conscious awareness, consciousness here and now that is uncreated. It's not male or female, it's not about right and wrong, but it's where these perceptions of right and wrong, male and female, arise and where they cease. So when they arise, we, we cling to them or we reject them, we resist them. So even resistance, trying to get rid of fear, trying to get rid of anxiety and worry, is a form of clinging to it. It's, it's not wisdom that, it, that is uh, operating through the tendency to want to get rid of something you don't like. So in this way, in the witness, the puto, then you, you know, you're seeing that all conditions that arise cease. And, and I encourage you to really take, see the value of seeing the cessation of conditions, also the arising of them, because that's the nature of phenomena. It's about birth and death. It's about death. It's about change. It's it's and this death and change and instability and fear and worry, anxiety, remorse, guilt all come from thinking. And thinking words in any language, whether it be English or Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan. Whatever language we have, you know, they're, they're creations by human beings. They are phenomena. They arise and cease. So even the teachings of the Buddha are phenomena. You know, so it's not about grasping the Buddhist teachings. But in using the Buddhist teachings to remind ourselves to be the witness to life that, as we experience it. So consciousness is, is not personal. So the body is in consciousness rather than consciousness inside the body. When we talk about the five khandhas, the body, the feelings, the, the memories, the emotions, 
and sensory consciousness, these are all subject to change, like consciousness through the eyes or ears, nose, tongue, the thinking mind itself, are all that, you know, consciousness operates through the, the body rather than the body consciousness is in the body consciousness itself has no body it is immeasurable but the, the physical forms we tend to see, see it all in a very personal way so this is why there's wars and quarrels and competitions and fears and desires that go on endlessly. And, and because we're caught in a vortex of change that's beyond our control and we're trying to control it. We all become a hermit, go off to a cave in a faraway place and try to live our lives away from the fears and problems of family or society. But if we still see, have this vision of ourselves as the, that I am this physical form, even in a cave, in a very silent place, the basic delusion, the basic ignorance still operates wherever, in cave or in the community. So I encourage you just to contemplate the, the shift that I'm alluding to and the fact that the, the body is, all these bodies, this uh, building itself, this sala, this monastery, the whole of New Hampshire and the rest of the United States is in the consciousness. Rather than consciousness is in this person, that person. So consciousness then is, is, is unitive because we're all, we've all, these forms that we identify with, they've all arisen in the same consciousness. So the consciousness isn't something that that we create out of ignorance, but is a natural state that we begin to recognize through this the teachings of the Buddha that are pointing to it. Universal conscious awareness. Now when that, when you begin to really trust in that and cultivate it, then you're, you're no longer just a critic of life, of yourself, of the world, of the people you live with, the society you're a member of, the religion you identify with. You're no longer, you know, caught in, in identifying with phenomena, but your true identity then is conscious awareness. This is how we realize that. And the absolute reality of Dhamma 
consciousness is spontaneous, Dhamma is our refuge. We don't take refuge in consciousness, but in this tradition we take refuge in Dhamma. And uh, what does that mean? So it's this identity with what is unsatisfactory and very, whose very nature is to change, identity with a physical form as it gets older, with its health, with its appearance. These can be endless forms of suffering by this ignorant attachment and identity with something you're not. None of you are ultimately that, what you think and believe in. But what you are ultimately is pure conscious awareness, absolute reality, the Dhamma. And that's the end of suffering, the Niroda, the third noble truth, when the, that begins to really no longer be a belief or a perception, but profound insight into your true nature. So how many of you would feel, what would you feel if I said you're all perfect? And then, you know, you, you see yourself as with faults, with flaws, with you're old, or you're male or female, or you're transgender, or all these perceptions that you identify with are, you know, is that really what you are? Is that, you know, what you've settled on as, as what you really are ultimately? Or what are you ultimately? And so enlightenment, when we talk about the deathless, is where we actually have insight into the end of conditions as, as we witness them, as we're the puto, the witness, that guilt arises, the condition suddenly you're feeling guilty about something you did years ago, or yesterday, or a few minutes ago, and it arises. The puto is aware of it, it's like this. And then, uh, then it ceases, and you you uh, notice, you pay attention to the cessation of the absence of guilt. And we don't tend to do that when, you, you know, we want to we we can carry guilt around as something we've got as a personal problem because we we we're very attached to the idea that guilt is my problem. But when we see it as it is another condition that arises and ceases, it arises in, co in consciousness and ceases in consciousness. And Puto, Buddha, is, knows the Dhamma, the deathless reality. So the deathless, try to imagine the deathless. You know, can you make an image of the deathless? You can make images uh, that, you know, that are 
impermanent, changing. You know, they really explore your intellect. Can you create a deathless reality with words, with forms? And, you know, in my experiments with this, I really spent a long time just practicing with the deathless, the uncreated, unborn, unconditioned, unformed. What is it? Because the Buddha in one of his suttas says there is the unborn, the uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And I thought, what, what is it? What can, what can be, that be? And trying to imagine the uncreated, unborn. You can't do it. You just use words like, you know, prefaces that negate it unborn, to, according to the word born. So you realize your intellect is very limited to forms, to ideas, to conditions. No matter how well educated you might be, how many PhDs you hold from prestigious universities, uh, that accumulated knowledge is not the deathless. You can't realize the deathless through thinking, through images, through concepts, through perceptions. So you can argue about ultimate reality according with words, metaphysical perceptions, with theology, and philosophy, and we try to understand consciousness through, uh, through analysis, through words, but not through awareness of what we're actually doing. So any of us, whether we're well-educated or not, is not the point, is to Trust in awareness. So the, the gate to the deathless is open. The statement of Paruta Desang Amantasa Tawara. And then it goes, Ye Soda One Taba Moon Chan Tu Satang. Those who are listening, Soda Wantas are listeners who hear this, trust in this. So it's like to investigate, to explore consciousness as you experience it, not to evaluate it in terms of right and wrong, true or false, but even superstitions, even nonsense, it still arises and ceases in consciousness. When you see the world is in consciousness rather than consciousness in the, in the many forms, you know, is that when you see see that the, the all the forms, the planet itself, the sun, moon, and stars, the whole universe is in consciousness. 
the forms here are in the same consciousness. It's not a consciousness that is just, uh, you know, according to individuals. So I remember years ago reading a psychologist questioning about are dogs really conscious or horses or, and you know, then it becomes ridiculous because the forms are different, you know, so the mammalian forms or the insects or the birds, the amoebas, all the fish in the ocean in the same consciousness. How does that make you, how, do, how does that affect you? Just changing the perception of, of just noticing the difference and creating perceptions of approval or disapproval according to the forms, which we do out of ignorance, out of habit. But when we have the, when we have that insight, insight, wisdom, knowledge, that consciousness is universal, then we, we have, you know, we begin to understand the Brahma Viharas. They're not just intellectual exercises of thinking positively anymore, but real feelings of metta or loving kindness, unconditioned acceptance of the way it is, is metta. Rather than seeing metta as a kind of exercise through thought or trying to feel uh, universal loving kindness as some kind of personal emotion. You know, so in moments when the conditions are right, we can feel a sense of love for all sentient beings, you know, but that, that emotion arises and ceases. If it's just based on clinging to words and perceptions, concepts, and particular situations. And then you can lose it just by somebody being rude or nasty or inconsiderate. And suddenly, you know, you, you don't feel love for them. You can feel anger and and uh, you want to reject them, get rid of them. But the Puto witness is aware when, when uh, you know, the forms of metta that are based on thoughts, they arise and cease, just like the anger or resentment or hostility that arises and ceases. Where metta comes from universal conscious awareness, it's unconditioned. Puto isn't, as I said, isn't judging, making value judgments about anything. So he's not trying to love everybody, everything in the universe. It's just natural because that is the way it is. It's spontaneous. It's not created. And the other three, the compassion 
you know, you begin to feel compassion for others because they suffer needlessly, caught in the in the web of samsara and the changing conditions, with seeing no way to escape or possibilities other than death or change or old age, sickness, loss of loved ones, wars, and on and on like that. Then we, then we, uh, you know, we get caught up with with the worry, anxiety, and fears that are created and the rise and cease. So when we talk about going to the source, investigate, we call it Dhamma Vijaya, getting to the source, investigating. This is what it really means practically, is being the witness to the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. Sape Sankara Anicca. That's not just some kind of Buddhist doctrine. That's, that's when you observe this yourself. You're not asked to believe that, but it's uh, encouragement to see, have you, is there anything permanent, any condition? Anything that's permanent that we experience through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling with our bodies. And then we investigate. We begin to be aware of the incessant, relentless changingness that we experience through these forms, and the insight begins to why hold on to them. Why identify with something unstable, uncertain, when what your true nature is unconditioned, unformed. So in terms of, is Dhamma a condition? The word itself is a condition, it's a human-made word. But absolute reality is unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unformed. And that's what we, when we take refuge in Dhamma, you know, we're taking, we're beginning to realize our true refuge is not in these delicate mortal forms but in ultimate absolute reality, which we call Dhamma, the way, the truth of the way it is. And so, you know, and the Buddhist teachings are and kind of brilliant signposts to this. They're always pointing at the deathless reality that we are. But we can study Buddhist scriptures and still be caught in, in clinging to the words as that we believe in rather than the actual witnessing of the way it is. And this is what I really appreciated when I 
met Lung Po Cha in Thailand years ago, that his teaching was an endless pointing at the way it is rather than telling me how it is, preaching at me how what Buddha taught and what we should treasure and believe in, but using our lives through the experiences that we have through these forms for witnessing the relentless changingness of the forms that we identify with. Well, this is quite a revolution because, you know, we're brought up to see everything very personally. And uh, we see the world in a very personal way of approval or disapproval. Just like refugees, foreigners, immigrants. You know, we can see, you know, in different races, we can see in terms of biases or personal preferences or conditions that we've acquired from our families, from our background. And so we, you know, we can rebel against that. You know, like they wanting to, to not be racially prejudiced or biased according to gender, or have views and opinions about lesbians and gays and things like that. These are all condition, conditions that we've acquired. So these are very much in the consciousness of present-day Americans, these terms. Climate change, LGBTQ perceptions, abortion, Nazism, fascism, communism, nationalism are all perceptions that are common to all of us, whether it's in a positive or negative way, that affect our lives. And we tend to act on these biases, you know, creating even more problems, more things to resent or fear or feel guilty about. So the Buddha was pointing exactly to the, the cause, the source. Suffering is a creation out of ignorance. Our true nature is Dhamma our refuge, our all, that doesn't change. That has, makes no value judgments. So it's, it's uh, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy. So we experience joy in the beauty of life rather than just trying to cling to it and then grumble when the beauty ceases. The goodness of others comes naturally, spontaneous, not some kind of, of uh, 
creation of the mind, upeka, equanimity, is, is true awareness. Awareness, conscious awareness is silent and equanimous. So, but we are, you know, no matter how much wisdom you've, you, you have in regard to the Buddha's teachings and how enlightened you might be, you, you know, we still feel the changes of life, the loss of loved ones, the misery of, that oftentimes we read about or hear about, starvation and and wars and bloodshed and corruption and all the rest, we can still feel compassion. But just not a created compassion. It's not like personal me trying to feel compassionate. So the Brahma Viharas are spontaneous from the pure state of conscious awareness. They're not created out of ignorance. So someone like Nungpa Cha had great compassion. And you could feel that, you know, here when you when I met him. He was trying to share his wisdom with as many people that would be interested. And he's always talking about bhati-bhata, or practice. So he, he emphasized that Wat Bapong, his monastery in Ubon, Thailand, was, uh, we called it Wat Bhatibhat, it's a practicing monastery, meditative. He's emphasizing meditation. Because Buddhism can just be very, you know, oriented to scholarship, to scriptural learning, to learning Pali or Sanskrit. And it can be just another subject in a university. Buddhist studies. At universities, there's nothing, I'm not criticizing that, but if it remains strictly on the study level, it's still intellectual knowledge that you acquire rather than insight through investigating, through tamavichaya, through sati, tamavichaya, investigating. So you realize this for yourself. You know, this is not just believing what some wise teacher like Lumpur Cha says, and, and just said Lumpur Cha said this, and Lumpur Cha said that, and so we can quote these, these teachers So we have a memory, so we might remember what he taught and how he said things and what, how he lived his life. But Bhatti Bhatta isn't about trying to emulate teachers, but having the confidence, the certainty of realization yourself. No matter what you think you are as a person, 
you know, like in my personality, my conditioned personality, you know, it doesn't see me as enlightened in any way. Because my personality isn't enlightened. So, you, you know, you can't, even I try to think about am I enlightened or not as a person, you know, this just raises doubts because that clinging to this sense of a separate self as a, as a person, as a separate person, can't conceive, can't realize ultimate reality. So when Lungpa Chai emphasized bhati bhata, this is the Pali word for meditation practice, bhavana. And then we put our trust in awareness in which we realize this for ourselves. It's what they call to be realized individually by the, through wisdom. So this wisdom is not personal, it's universal. It's available to every single human being on the planet. It's not like we're special, gifted, spiritually gifted individuals. We can, we can believe in such perceptions, but those are created words and just a form of personal identity. So people have taught, asked me about my past life. And, uh, you know, they wanted, what was I before I became Robert Jackman, or born into the Jackman family 88 years ago? And I'm in the slightest clue. <laughs> but I can create images. I've had kind of perceptions of, you know, kind of mystical experiences before I came across Buddhism, what I call mystical experiences. But I didn't have the wisdom to understand them. So I took them personally. And I have mystical experiences in the past. And then people say, oh, you know, you, uh, you, uh, you have a lot of barami, a lot of accumulated virtues to become enlightened in the present. And all this is part of a scenario of self, separate self. Because the body doesn't get enlightened. The emotions aren't enlightened. The thoughts are not enlightened in themselves. They're conditioned. But enlightenment is a true nature that we begin to realize through the going, reading the signposts and investigating in this way with Pluto knowing Dhamma, absolute reality, that is no longer just a belief or taken personally, but awakened to reality itself, to Dhamma to our real refuge. So in 
Thailand, you know, many people believe that this monk is an arahant or that monk isn't an arahant or, you know, society goes around looking, you get more merit by giving food and dana to an arahant than to a Buddhist nun or all kinds of perceptions, you know, about to gain the most merit personally, you know, an arahant is the ultimate uh, you know, opportunity. So you can go around different monasteries throughout time looking for arahants and making merit. It's not wrong. It's not like I'm saying it's wrong. But it's not really understanding the the heart, the real essence of Buddha Dhamma. It's still operating on a personal, I want to make merit. I want to get merit for my next life and, uh, and but and so that's a perception that arises it's very cultural in Thailand because in America we, I wasn't brought up with that perception the perception I was brought up was that I was born a sinner so you get the the idea that, you know, you're basically damaged when you're born. And how does that affect you? How does that affect your life? You know, when you see yourself, there's always something you've got to fix, something wrong with you personally. Because you were born in sin or damaged, and your nature is a sinner and you hope to be forgiven by God to to get rid of the sins, to forgive the sins. And so, so much of religion can be around trying to pacify God and, and uh, try to be virtuous, make merit, and this is, this is, you know, this is praiseworthy to be virtuous, to be moral, but it's still conditioned. It's still phenomenal. So what is above the conditions, what is beyond is Dhamma. And so in the Pali tradition we take refuge in Dhamma, not in some hoping the next life we have a better rebirth. And in the Bhattibhata, if we do hold it, we hope in the in the next life I'm born in the Deva realm, Puto knows that's a perception that arises and ceases in the present. It's it's a condition, it's not reality, it's not what we are. So you you realize that you're not anything. Dhamma is not a thing. When we use the word Dhamma, it's not you can't find it as a thing. Apparent here and now, timeless, come and see. It's a, what? What do you? You know what? What is it that you don't create or think about? And you begin to really take refuge in Dhamma, in awareness, sati sampajanya, mindfulness, wide open awareness. 
not just aware of objects, but of space, of ultimate reality. And consciousness, Dhamma, Dhamma, consciousness, space, and the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, all of them, the space, the earth, fire, water, and air, all conditioned phenomena depends on consciousness. Without consciousness, there's no space, there's no earth, fire, water, and air, there's no bodies, there's nothing. So it ends up as a kind of nothing, a nihilism, annihilationism. But the Buddha made it very clear he wasn't preaching about annihilationism or nihilism, but about the deathless, the gate to the deathless is open. Those who are listening trust in this. So I offer this for today's reflection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.